The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For more information on how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This series is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lantheus Medical Imaging, Merck & Co. Inc., Pfizer Inc., and Sanofi Genzyme. Good evening, my name is Jay Rahman and I'm Professor of Urology at Penn State Health and Chair of the AUA's Office of Education. It's my pleasure to host another one of our podcasts with this specific episode being part of our Expert Exchange in Genital Urinary Cancer Series. Today's specific episode is titled Addressing Disparities and Variations in Care in GU Oncology. And it's really my pleasure to host uh, two thought leaders in the field, uh, Dr. Kelvin Moses and Dr. Svetlana Avulova. Uh, Dr. Moses is Associate Professor of Urology at the Vanderbilt University uh, School of Medicine. Uh, and uh, Dr. Svetlana Avulova is Assistant Professor of Urology at the Albany Medical Center. So uh, first of all, um, Kelvin, Svetlana, uh, happy holidays, and thank you so much for taking some time to join uh, me on this podcast. Happy holidays to you all as well. Thank you for having us. Happy holidays, and um, thank you for having us. Perfect. So just to um, orient our audience, uh, we have several learning objectives in this podcast, and uh, at the end of this activity, uh, participants uh, will be able to, number one, discuss the impact of race and cultural barriers on optimal GU cancer care. Number two, evaluate the financial toxicity as a barrier to optimal patient care in urologic cancers. And number three, incorporate culturally sensitive communications to ensure quality care and reduce biases across diverse patient populations. Um, so, what maybe I'll, I'll start and I'll open it up to both of you and, and uh, whomever would like to field this or, or just kick us off. Um, but just really high level for our audience, um, maybe talk a little bit about health disparities and racial disparities and, and, and what are these and, and how do you sort of think about or, you know, at least for yourselves, define the, these terms and these phrases? Well, I'll go ahead and kick it off. So um, if you define health disparities, it's really seeing differences in incidence, treatment, and survival of different conditions based on sociodemographic factors. Um, and it would be in ways that you would not necessarily expect based on biology of disease. And so the incidence of breast cancer is going to be very different in women than in men. That's not necessarily a disparity that that makes um, biological sense, uh, but um, differences in other conditions based on 
your gender, race, ethnicity, your zip code, uh, especially in a way that's deemed not fair or equitable would, would be a health disparity. And the way we see it most glaringly is by race in this country, but certainly also by uh, gender or even sexual orientation. Yeah, I would agree with uh, what Kelvin said. I think, uh, you know, specific to GU oncology, um, there's a glaring difference in the diagnosis of bladder cancers between men and women. Um, and this unfortunately leads to downstream effects like more aggressive disease being diagnosed in women and, and therefore more aggressive treatment is needed. So maybe to both of you, um, so you sort of help define, um, you know, both if you look at race or, or other factors that are not race, um, what are these disparities? What, what, are, what are some of the, the causes of this? Um, I mean, Kelvin, you mentioned a few, but, but uh, I mean, are, are, it, it, when you think about this topic, are there a certain array of causes that sort of come to your mind as underlying factors for the disparities that we see? Yeah, I mean, the, the cause is, um, is actually very identifiable because the cause is a downstream sequela of how the system is set up. So inequitable treatment has been the definition of care in this country since its inception. And so women were viewed as second-class citizens. Blacks were considered non-human. Uh, Native Americans were considered subhuman. And so uh, just by definition, we see the ripple effect of, of 400 years of history in this country. Now, specifically for our time, we see differences because of uh, neighborhood segregation, which still occurs. Uh, differences in family wealth, which is a, a result of different ways that government and banking and education and policing occur in our country. Uh, differences in, in, in insurance coverage. Uh, remember, we're one of the few Western countries that practice medicine for profit. And so it's a conglomeration of all these factors that lead to disparate outcomes uh, in various populations. So give us a little bit of sense. Uh, we talked a little bit about um, uh, bladder cancer and, and, and disparities in gender. What, what else do we see in urology? I mean, just for our listeners, um, what are some other examples of where we, where there's obvious disparities that we, we see in clinical practice? So, um, yeah, I think that's a great question uh, for clinical disparities in practice. I mean, one example comes to mind is um, in prostate cancer and uh, the, the diagnosis of more aggressive prostate cancer in African-American men um, and therefore potentially leading to more aggressive treatment like radiation or hormone therapy versus offering surgery. Um, another example would be for um, small renal masses and similar example, 
not offering nephron sparing surgery because of uh, perhaps an elevated creatinine, which was deemed by the uh, race-specific formula for creatinine evaluation. Yeah, no, no, I, I think completely. It's just, it's just helpful, I think, as you've illustrated here, to show that, um, and really to highlight, it's, it's not sort of disease-specific, right? I mean, even in our small world of urology, um, it does indeed span across um, elements of cancer, uh, different types of cancer, benign disease, if you just look at, as you mentioned, sort of calculations of GFR. Um, but I think, I think you summarize really nicely that, that there are a number of different scenarios. So we've talked a little bit about um, the fact that disparities exist. We've talked a little bit about um, some of the causes as well as some of the implications of disparities. Um, so it's, it's, you know, always good to, to think a little bit about, all right, what's being done? And, and you know, I, maybe, you know, the, the simple word is solutions, but uh, I don't think we've solved the problem. But what is being done to address these disparities? And, you know, I'll turn it over to either of you to sort of tackle that. And I know there's a number of different mechanisms. So however you want to uh, sort of go back and forth to, to, to sort of consider the different um, different avenues. Yeah, I think one of the ways, if you look at it on different levels, right, so you have sort of the governmental federal level approach, you have differential approach between states, and we can talk a little bit more about why certain states make decisions <laughs> uh, in comparison to others, and then on a more community level based approach. So you know, on the federal level, the, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, a lot of the push for that was to sort of equalize treatment or give access to screening and treatment uh, for populations that otherwise were not receiving that. Um, there are also some quality metrics that were associated with reimbursement. And, and really the whole point too was to move from fee for service to, you know, quality of care and, and bundling payments. And you see then on a state level, uh, those that participate in affordable care exchanges and, and particularly the Medicaid exchanges, you saw increases in cancer screening, you saw um, differences in stage at presentation, um, more people were getting primary care follow-up, uh, whereas states that did not continue to have poor outcomes. And so states in the Southeast who have the strongest legacy of, of slavery and segregation and, and, and some in the, in the West continue to have these poor outcomes versus states that um, did participate. You know, on a community level, I think institutions are starting to grapple with their legacies over over time. If you look at any medical center that's been around for more than 50 or 60 years, they probably were segregated at some point. And so there's a trust factor with the community. Um, and so institutions, I think, are reaching out more, having community-based engagement, community-based participatory research. 
Um, there are advocacy groups like Beacon for Bladder Cancer. And I know, doc I know Dr. Avalova is very involved with them. Uh, the Kidney Cancer Association, um, Prostate Cancer Foundation, uh, Zero, all these different advocacy groups. Uh, they, they have multiple facets. They do uh, lobbying for research funding. They do educational programs. They do physician engagement things. So there's multiple levels, um, but certainly there's still a lot of work to do. Um, maybe Dr. Avalova can speak more on kind of what Beacon does and, and some things that are going on in the Northeast. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought them up. I think um, so Beacon is Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network. For those who, who don't know, it was started by the Qualley family um, at the time when uh, John Qualley had a metastatic bladder cancer. He unfortunately has since passed away, but his wife, Diane Qualley, really has um, carried the torch in terms of uh, making information on bladder cancer available for patients. And the reason why this organization started is at that time, uh, there was really, there were very few resources available for patients diagnosed with bladder cancer. And since um, being an organization now for almost, I think, 20 years, uh, they've really done tremendous work in increasing awareness. And one and on one topic in particular is, again, bladder cancer in women. And so, Jay, you asked sort of what are the current strategies? Well, one would be to increase awareness and, and identify why, what is one potential reason for, you know, possible factor why women are diagnosed um, later? Well, are we ignoring the irritative symptoms that they're presenting with, the irritative symptoms or the blood in the urine oftentimes gets dismissed as UTIs or recurrent UTIs. So, so increased awareness um, is one through webinars, through educational programs, as um, Kelvin has said, Beacon has done an amazing um, job and, and as well as increasing research monies um, for young investigators and I uh, I'm a fortunate beneficiary of such a, such an award, and I feel very grateful to them. So, you, you know, you both highlighted very nicely, um, you know, if you just sort of start with what Kelvin talked about, which is sort of some of the federal and state level, and then Svet, what you talked about, which is, you know, really sort of a commitment for an organization, uh, whether it be Beacon, as you highlighted very, very eloquently right now, uh, KCA for kidney cancer, prostate cancer foundation, uh, wh whichever it may be. But I think there's sort of different levels that you've all highlighted very nicely. Um, and so, so we have some of these tools and we have some, um, mechanisms at various levels. Um, so what are, so wh where are we hitting the hiccups? Um, you know, where, wh where are the barriers, where are the barriers to progress, where um, and and I'll turn it over to either of you and you know it, it and you know whether it's federal state uh, funding uh, whether it's uh, individual organizations where, where are the barriers to progress here? So the the three levels that I mentioned it it's the same right there there's federal resistance to providing funding for healthcare. 
their state resistance to participating in exchanges, which it's a little bit of an insanity uh, to me because those citizens in the states pay taxes and it's their tax money. And so you're just sort of giving away tax money to, to uh, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face. And then it's on an individual level. I think, you know, we as physicians have to understand that we are the advocates for our patients. That is our profession. And sometimes we have to let go of our personal preferences or our personal prejudices um, in order to advocate for our patients, especially those who cannot necessarily speak for themselves. And I frequently give the example, not that he had personal prejudices, but I give the example of Mark Litwin at UCLA. You know, he went to the California legislature and showed the numbers. Black men die at two times the rate from prostate cancer compared to white men. Black and Hispanic men are less likely to get treated for prostate cancer. A lot of it is because of finances. And he got funding from the California state legislature. And so it takes people to kind of step out and and, and, and provide that, that care um, and that advocacy. Um, and the biggest barrier is we, we don't have representation in medicine that we have in general society. You know, uh, 5% or less of physicians in the U.S. are Black, uh, which has a approximately 13, 14% representation in the U.S., a similar gap in, in Hispanic population. And if you look specifically at urology, the numbers are even lower, and certainly for women, right? Like, we're, in the resident ranks, those numbers are getting better. Mm -hmm. I would say it's not necessarily representative, but... Uh, if you look at the, the um, population, and again, Svet might know these numbers even better than I do, but um, we, we are, we're, we're fighting against battles that has happened historically, but also we're fighting against um, a, a, a group think that says if we just ignore or stop talking about our problems, that somehow it'll go away. And unfortunately, that's not how it works. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think the, you know, and I, I, I want to provide hope too, as you said, Kelvin. The, the numbers are getting better, but they're not there yet, especially for women. I mean, I think it's less than ten percent of women in urology, even less for women in urologic oncology. But I think the other important factor that we really have to bring this in is, is for our patients, right? So the lack of diversity in clinical trial development, and most of it is driven by um, industry, which is helpful, right? This is how we bring in money to find new drugs. and um, But the lack of diversity in patient representation, I mean, less than 10% of African-Americans are represented in clinical trials. So we really need to expand this and we need help from the NIH to help regulate it. It's a big ask, but unfortunately, um, we got to keep pushing for that. So you, you, you raise a really good point there, um, which is, you know, obviously we look at clinical trials and, and, um, in, in many regards, you know, certainly prospective clinical trials are 
are the holy grail of what we want to do, right? I mean, they're they're asking questions, they're investigating, um, but the conclusions are only as sound as the composition of who who is in that group that you're treating. And and I think you highlighted really nicely, Svet, that that we do have a real issue and challenge with the diversity of persons in clinical trials, whether that's, you know, gender, race, age. Um, so maybe just give our listeners a little bit of a sense of, and I, I don't know if either of you have any of the, the insight into this, what is being done? Um, what, what are some of the mechanisms to try to improve the diversity of who is accrued into clinical trials to actually make the findings more generalize, generalizable to a population? Well, I, um, so I talked to um, various industry representatives, MSLs, and they always ask me that same question, like, what can we do better? Mm-hmm. And so the example I give them is that um, Nick Saban is one of the most successful coaches in college football because he goes where the talent is, no matter where. And so for the for industry and even for NIH, it's very easy to come to Vanderbilt or go to Cleveland Clinic or go to Penn State or go to Albany or whatever, whatever cancer center is already in existence because the, the processes and the um, resources are already there. But if they don't have a diverse population, then you're missing out. And so you have to go to where the people are. And yeah, you might have to put in a little bit of extra work and a little bit of extra money. And I, I want to mention that diversity in clinical trials is important. I heard recently someone mentioned, you know, because we, and I've made the point many times in my talks that race is a social, social construct, it's not a biological entity. And so we should not, number one, we shouldn't expect that there should be different outcomes. But the reason that it's important in clinical trials is that because of the environmental effect because of the likely epigenetic effect of, of, of uh, stress caused by racist structures, even if you can't identify them. Sometimes there are differential outcomes. I mean, we've seen in a lot of the advanced prostate cancer trials, uh, black men have actually responded better to some of the therapies, particularly the ones that are immunologically based. And so that's why they have to be diverse. That's why you need to include these men. But Beyond that, if group A dies at twice the rate of a condition compared to group B, and you're trying to close that gap and improve survival overall, who would you focus on? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you, it, just take race out of it then, if you, if you want to think of it clinically or, or objectively. That's why it needs to be diversified. And that's why these companies need to diversify their team. That's why they need to, when they when they go to a community and talk about clinical trials, which have such a nasty history in this country, when it comes to Blacks, when it comes to Native Americans, then send somebody who looks like them and can relate to that community. Because again, if there's a history of your company experimenting on people like me at the expense, at our expense, and I'm not going to trust you until you prove otherwise. Mm-hmm. But we still need to be, we still need to participate. So that that's where the, the, the 
the real change needs to come. And I just want to highlight another really important um, disparity, which is, again, I'm bringing it back to bladder cancer in women because this is such a huge gap in literature, you know, because women get diagnosed less often than men, you know, about four to one ratio, men get diagnosed more, women undergo less radical cystectomy surgery. And so on a national level, maybe at most high volume centers, at most 20 radical cystectomies are done in females. Clinical data available for surgical outcomes on these women is really limited and and desperate, uh, disparate rather, and so we don't really have a way to counsel women on what they can expect after this life-altering surgery, because we have single institutional case series to go by, which at most maybe 20 patients a year, if they're lucky, and so it's really important not just to what Kelvin was saying, you know, engage industry, increase diversity, but then also come together as a community and 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 be more open to multi-institutional um, work where we we bring together data, we collaborate, we create these surgical um, consortiums on on rare diseases so it's it's really important so i think you you started to sort of hit on you know the 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 area that i was hoping to finish this podcast on which is um and, and i feel like it's it's always good to finish off uh on you know what are the solutions what's the what's the path forward um and and you know i i don't think there's one simple answer to that but you know, maybe I'll I'll start off and, and ask you both. I mean, I, I think there's paths forward. You know, at a you and me level, so individual providers. There's paths forward as an institution. There's paths forward as an organization, whether it be the AUA or uh, advocacy through through the, um, the that arm of the AUA. So, what are some of the paths forward, and what what can people do? So we we've you know outlined really clearly there is a problem. There's a scope of a problem. But what can we do? Um, what can we do from an sort of an actionable point of view? And I'll turn it over to both of you. So I think one is um, from an individual level to be open to collaboration, right? And, and the SUO does a very good job of um, highlighting need for uh, different trials, different sites. So participating in in trials. Mm -hmm. Um, and then being aware of the different places that are, um, that are, that, that need, um, participation, I guess, to be as simple as that, right? Um, but being open to collaboration, um, I would say, uh, second would be to, uh, be aware of these different organizations, um, and participate in them, and then also uh, engage your patients and make them aware of these organizations. So let's say, for example, if you do practice in the Southeast 
and all you see are a certain type of patient population. Well, maybe once in a blue moon, you see a patient of a different race or a different gender or different background. Well, maybe these organizations will have information on that. Um, and, and so if you refer your patients to these organizations, then they'll be a little bit more open to talking about it. So even if you may not have certain background or experience, um, sending them to resources of these different organizations that were already mentioned, they will, like the Prostate Cancer Foundation, for example. They do a really nice job of, they have um, a handout on African-Americans and prostate cancer. And I give it to my African-American patients because they look at me like, first of all, you look like you're 30. And second of all, you're like a young white woman. What do you know about prostate cancer and a black man? And so I literally give them this, this handout and I say, read this. And I highlight the po the points that I want them to take away. And And some of those, you know, they may be higher level, education level than they're used to. And so then I'll say, like, what don't you get? Like, let me explain this to you. And if it's not, it's not. And, and it, it is salient with them and they appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's great. And the, the, the point about communication is such a huge thing. You know, we, we grow up in silos and we grow up in our bubbles. And um, the more that we can communicate effectively, the more our patients will buy into what we're telling them. Um, and so I appreciate you bringing that up. I think the, the AUA, again, in general, is, is starting to recognize that these issues exist um, by having this podcast and, and by setting up the, the uh, equity council. Um, but I'll go back to our individual responsibilities. I mean, do we have the political will in order to vote as advocates for our patients. And again, your, your, your personal concerns uh, may differ. However, we have a professional responsibility to our patients. We have given an oath to our patients. And so we will, um, we, we need to understand that it's one thing to go to a talk or go to a lecture or go to a diversity class. But then if you go and uh, vote in a way or for a particular person or group that is the antithesis of what you say you believe in for your patients, you've almost nullified your argument. So, um, you know, and that's probably gonna be the hardest thing for a lot of people. I'll have to say, especially for as as um, the makeup of our organization or our practice, that's going to be hard. And uh, I I can I appreciate that, but we are the line of defense for our patients, and we have to behave in that way. That's uh, really well said. Um, so, um, Kelvin, Sweat, uh, first of all. Uh, really enjoyed uh, the conversation, the discussion. Uh, obviously, you both are uh, very eloquent thought leaders in this space. And uh, I first of all want to thank you both for uh, taking some time um, and sharing some of your thoughts on this podcast for our audience. 
Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah. And and I will say that, you know, I'm, (laughs) it was just uh, a moment ago where I was uh, Dr. Moses's chief resident. So uh, to be called a thought leader, I think is kind of a hyperbole, but I appreciate the comment. (laughs) No, I agree with you, Jay. She's, she's, she's the future. It's coming. Um, I want to thank our audience as well. Uh, for more information, uh, please visit us at auanet.org slash university. Uh, Svet, Kelvin, uh, again, you have a great evening and a happy and safe holiday to both of you and your families. Thank you very much. Thank you. Happy holidays.